We value knowing things, not the process of not knowing something and wanting to get the answer. And those are a world apart, those two perspectives. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. When Charles Darwin was trying to make sense of the species he was and was not finding in the Galapagos Islands, he famously and repeatedly asked, why must this be so? It's a scientist refrain, the question one asks while testing a hypothesis, finding perhaps that another is needed. It's a question Susan Engel, a senior lecturer in psychology and founding director of the program in teaching at Williams College, asks of herself as well. Susan's research interests include the development of curiosity, children's narratives, play, and more generally, teaching and learning. Her current research looks at whether students learn to think well in college. Susan is a contributing author to Curiosity Studies, A New Ecology of Knowledge. I was excited to hear from her about our collective journey as evolving curious creatures. So welcome, Susan. Thank you so much. You write about curiosity and kids. Do you have a memory yourself of being curious of your own curi- or conscious of your own curiosity? So much memories of that. Um, so the book I wrote, The Hungry Mind, every chapter starts with something from my own childhood, uh, a moment when I experienced extreme curiosity. The first chapter begins with me as a little tiny girl, just barely past toddlerhood, riding down on my bike towards the beach. I lived uh, amongst potato fields and jumping off my bike to crouch down and investigate some of the potato plants that were growing next to the road and finding one of my favorite exotic specimens, which was a potato bug, <laughs> and lifting it up and crunching on it. And that's a family joke, even now, uh, <laughs> that I like to eat potato bugs. But I didn't really like to eat them. I didn't swallow them. I wanted to find out what was inside them. What would happen, yeah. And, you know, the reason I tell that story, well, one, it's funny and weird. And two, I think it exemplifies a characteristic of every child, not just unusual children, which is that we all want to know more about the world around us. And when we're very young, that's a very powerful urge. And it makes us do all kinds of things. I mean, that's the way in which two-and-a-half-year-olds are much more powerful learners than than most 14-year-olds and certainly than most 30- or 40-year-olds, which is this intrepid desire to find out. So leap forward okay. some amount of years yes. to your interest in curiosity in kids other than yourself and in learning. Where did that come from? My formal interest in curiosity as a topic of, of research began in a room full of teachers where a lot of my best ideas come from. And this group of teachers uh, was sitting around complaining about the ways in which their work with children was mismeasured. Mm. And they said, you know, we are sick of being evaluated in terms of how many words a child can spell right or how many history facts they can recall or how many f- math problems they can solve in a limited period of time. And I 
am a realist. I know that we live in a world of measurement and that it's not unreasonable for communities and families to get some objective measure of what is happening to their children in school. So I said, okay, you don't want to be measured by those things. What do you want to be measured mm-hmm. by? What mm-hmm. is it you really care about? Mm. And what do you think should happen during the year that could be measured? So what they said. And they said, <laughs> and this was interesting because it sounded like a jumble at the minute, uh-huh. at, you know, in the moment. Somebody said, I just want to know that they really want to know stuff. And somebody else said, I want to know that they're eager to learn. And somebody else said, I want to know that they've gotten better at learning. Mm. So they, mm-hmm. they had a a jumbly set of answers. But as I thought it over uh, in later in the day, I thought, you know, they were all talking about the same thing. Yeah, They were all saying, I want to know that my students are curious and that they can pursue that feeling of curiosity. Now, the really interesting moment for me came a little while later when I thought, okay, so you think that curiosity is really important to the educational enterprise, but does that mean you think you're doing something to help it? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you're just saying, I want to pick children who are intrinsically curious, and that couldn't be what a teacher cares about, just the inborn characteristic their right. child brings, their student brings to the classroom. So I began to think, okay, curiosity is something that teachers must implicitly feel that they can nurture, that they can help guide it. And there must be a way to measure it, because if it's that important, it should be the thing we're evaluating schools by. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I say this in my book, we're a, we're a society that measures what we value and values what we measure. So yeah. if you measure math facts, that's what you're going to pay attention to in the classroom. And I thought, okay, I'm going to change that. I'm going to, it was very naive and incredibly arrogant. This was like 15 years ago. I thought, I'll just come up with a measure of curiosity, and then all our problems will be solved. Well, eventually they will all yeah. be solved, okay. but we're not there yet, nice right? Thought. So what did yeah. you so what did you come up with? Well, so I really truly thought I'll develop a measure of curiosity and that was the first step, but I quickly realized there were about fifteen steps I had to take before mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. the fifteen steps really were focused on figuring out what the development of curiosity looks like. What would what does a three-year-old do when they're curious? Mm-hmm. What does a six-year-old do? What goes on in classrooms that might look like curiosity, and how could you capture it? And that started me on a on many years of uh, trying to understand how curiosity develops during the early years of life. And so one of the things that was clearly key in that progression is this question of novelty. Yes. So talk about novelty. I will. I will. (laughs) So, you know, as a developmental psychologist, I'm always interested in the question of how something begins and how it changes over Mm -hmm. time. So when are children first curious and what do I think are the stages it might go through as they get older? And I realized very quickly, but I didn't develop this. Jean Piaget talked about it. The psychologist Jerome Kagan talked about it. Um, we They describe curiosity as the urge to explain the unexpected mm-hmm. or resolve uncertainty. And if that's a beautiful those are beautiful definitions because they capture the sort of the center kernel right. of everybody's curiosity. Right. 
But you only have to think about that for a second to realize that almost everything is new to Mm -hmm. a newborn. Mm -hmm. Now, we also know that babies are incredibly good at uh, detecting patterns. Mm -hmm. They're born with that capacity. And thank God that they are because it enables them. Right. How else would you ever make sense of all of the incoming? Right. Exactly. You, You seek out. They have like antenna. For, for repetition, for routine, for pattern. And they have equally good antenna for anything that's different from that. So if every morning your mother comes to you with a little sippy cup of juice and one day you tip the little sippy cup up and something other than juice is in there, say chocolate milk, <laughs> um, you're surprised. Mm-hmm. And you, the baby, and your heartbeat changes, and the moisture on your skin changes, and your breathing changes. You that Those are the internal characteristics. Externally, we all know what it looks like when a, a baby or a toddler is surprised by something new. They stop, they stare, and they begin to investigate. Sometimes they investigate just by listening more or looking more, and sometimes they grab things and open them, lick them, shake them, throw them down. Those are all behaviors aimed at getting more information Mm -hmm. so that the unexpected object or event or person can be woven into what they know to become part of what's familiar to Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And the reason that fits as a developmental description is that we can imagine that early on the baby's gathering information about everything because everything's unexpected and that over time as more of life becomes more predictable their curiosity gets sort of focused in on fewer and fewer things and they might go more deeply into those unexpected moments. So, oh, I have so many questions about this. <laughs> so one of the things you talk about is actually is that as curiosity narrows, it gets harder for others to see, right? It's not as evident. That's right. So maybe we equate our inability to see it with its lessening, but maybe that's a fair equation, maybe not. Right. So I think about that. Okay. And then I think about this question of novelty and sort of carrying novelty forward. Yes. And and as you were talking with the teachers, for instance, yeah. how does novelty fit into their equation or their work in the classroom right. to keep novelty, which is an increasingly challenging thing to do as people become more knowledgeable? Is that a necessary component? Is that something they think about? Is it something you think about? Okay, I'll answer those two yeah. questions, but each one is a know, whole we'll, book. Yeah. Uh, um, so let's see. First, let's talk about this idea that the it's obvious when a two-year-old is curious. Right. They they behave in uh, very specific ways. They they grab things, as I said. They pull things apart. They put things in their mouth. They ask a million questions. I haven't even talked about that, the right. question asking piece. But, and it's true that as we get older, there are two things that happen and it's easy to confuse them. One is that there's less and less of everyday life that seems surprising and unexpected mm-hmm. and mysterious. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that we become less intrepid and sort of explosive in our curiosity and we become more conforming. Mm-hmm. So people stop putting things in their mouth to find out what they are, unless those people are scientists, uh-huh. for instance. Uh-huh. I mean, there's this great story about the biologist E.O. Wilson. A colleague told me this story. It was at a conference maybe 10 years ago in South America, and there was a break during this very academic you know, a conference where everyone was sitting and 
giving papers and looking at one another and talking about graphs. But during the break, they were having tea and cookies, and E.O. Wilson, in the middle of talking to a colleague about some very abstract concept, leaned down and put a little piece of cookie down on the floor oh, on the terrace. Uh, he said, I just want to see which kind of ants are going to come eat it. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, scientists uh -huh. like children go on acting on their curiosity right. in very visible ways. Right. But the rest of us become a little more, a little less intrepid and a little more conforming and a little less well-behaved. I mean, a little more well-behaved. So it can be hard to tell when someone's curious because they're not putting things in their mouths and banging on things and taking things apart. Mm -hmm. They may just be sitting there thinking about something. Yeah. And that's true, that for psychologists, there's a challenge in finding out what curiosity would look like when you're 8 or 15 or 25. Right. It doesn't look the way it did when you were 2. But we also know from a wide range of experiments that people also become less curious. Mm -hmm. So they they act on their curiosity in a slightly different way. I no longer eat bugs most of the time. <laughs> uh, but it's also true from research that, uh, that we know that people become a little less avid for new information mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of my great interests. What makes curiosity wane as we get older? Some of it's inevitable. The world, the everyday world, becomes more familiar. But some of it is a out, is a function of our educational system, and that brings me to your second question. Right, right. So, what's a teacher so to do? What's a teacher to do? Um, well, there are two parts to that, and I could go on and on about <laughs> either one. Uh, the first is to deliberately foster curiosity, mm -hmm. um, and that takes some effort. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have found really interesting is that though, though that first group of teachers that I met with that gave me this idea talked about how much they want to foster curiosity, most teachers, and we know this from some research, in their everyday lives treat it as a characteristic that's in some children and not in, and other not children. in others. Right. So they, they think, you know, he's tall, she's, she's energetic, curious. and he's curious, uh -huh. and she's not. And uh -huh. Instead of thinking, will my group of students be more curious and be more able to pursue their curiosity by the end of their year with me? And that's the mindset they should have. Mm -hmm. And that would require a set of practices on their part that most teachers are not equipped to engage in, but they could be. So they're not equipped, why? Because we don't make it the focus of our educational process. Mm -hmm. And actually, as a society, we value knowing things, right. not the process of not knowing something and wanting to get the answer. And those are a world apart, those two perspectives. So that's one thing. I'll just say, and we can go back to it, when you asked what can teachers do to foster curiosity and how do you bring the unknown or the novel into a classroom. Another thing that I think teachers need to do is allow more unexpected material into mm -hmm. their classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would also take some deliberate effort on their part. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and my guest is psychology professor Susan Engel. You talk about the importance of ambiguity and uncertainty for learning. Yes. And... Uh, and I was thinking about that also in the context of your work around 
the way teachers respond to children's curiosity yes. based on their sense of the purpose of the activity. Yes. And I thought, wow, everything that we're doing in education today must be wrong. Because <laughs> if, if the teachers are so concerned about the standardized tests right. and those sorts of things, then if their idea of the purpose of the activity is to prepare the kids to take a test, right. that has consequences that are much more profound than we really realize. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that everything we're doing is wrong because luckily there are a lot of great teachers. That's true. In, I, in the country. I, I stand uh, correctly corrected there. Well, so a lot of them have the capacity to yeah. do this and the wish to. If we were going to fault anyone, let's fault the people who set the standards mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. education, yeah. who have their eye on the wrong thing. Because I think often, and we I've seen this in some research that my students and I did at Williams College, when teachers are given an orientation towards gathering information with their students, they actually are very responsive to that. The minute mm -hmm. they're encouraged to help kids find out more, they do. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that you speak about is this interesting paradox that curiosity rests on this appetite for the unknown, Mm -hmm. for that uncertainty. But it depends on a sense of the known, of safety and yes. security. Yes. Unfold that a little bit, if you would. Sure. So any mom or dad of a 15-month-old will recognize what, I, what I'm describing when I talk about a baby in, a in an uncertain situation, let's say mm -hmm. the mom or the dad leaves the room and the baby is nervous or cries or is fearful, they're not going to explore. They're not going to look around. They're going to cry for their mom or dad. They're going to look at the window. They're going to behave in an insecure way. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of an illustration of a fundamental characteristic of early life, which is babies can't explore the world around them if they feel uncertain of of in this case, a person they feel mm -hmm. they can mm -hmm. trust and count on and the person they want to be near. For most babies, when that person is around, when they feel a sense of safety and security, that's when they explore the world around them. And I've actually thought about this a lot in the last few years, how often we expect school children to learn, to mm -hmm. be curious, to be open to the unknown, when they in fact feel so much uncertainty and insecurity. And the sources of that insecurity range from having to get to school in a place that's scary or uncertain because mm -hmm. of your walk to school or the bus ride you take right. to right. the kinds of insecurity and uncertainty you might feel in the classroom with a teacher who makes you scared. It's very hard to learn when you're scared if by learning you mean open yourself to new information and explore the world around you. People don't do that when they're afraid. And. And there's sort of a kind of a confounding of that paradox, it seems, when kids who are less curious by nature are more susceptible. There are these multipliers in this equation, aren't absolutely, there? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So in a variety of studies, when you bring a, a child into a lab where there's some interesting box or toy to explore, and an adult they don't know in the room, the response of that adult to the child's behavior has a big effect on how quickly they explore the object, how many ways they try to explore the object, how long they investigate. So a smiling, encouraging adult makes a big difference, mm -hmm. and so does a severe-looking or disapproving-looking <laughs> adult. Right. The very kids who might most need help from an adult to become more curious or to pursue their curiosity 
are the ones who are going to be most damaged by a set of adults or a set of environments that discourage them from investigating. Mm. And do you think that that conveys into later stages of life? I mean, it's- Well, it's a great question. So one thing that I experienced when I first started to do work on this topic, and I'd go give talks all over and at universities, and very often somebody in the audience would come up to me afterwards and say, do you think it can still be nurtured in college students? Mm-hmm. Or do you think this really can change when people get older? And at first I thought they were challenging me. They thought I was talking pie in the sky. Then I found out that they, most of the people asking me that question were university professors who were very upset that their students didn't seem more curious. Mm-hmm. The truth is I don't know the answer to the question. I think it's an area that is begging for research. Yeah. We don't know what the upper limit is. We know we can get younger children to be more curious. And actually there's some really interesting research going on right now to see if with, if encouraging children to be curious sort of situation by situation might lead to a long-term permanent change. Uh But we don't know, and I don't know of much research going on about older people. Yeah. Well, it is, of course, sort of the the underlying assumption in my own show of choose to be curious. You don't feel intrepid. I love that word in this context. I really like that. (laughs) But what if you make a choice moment to moment to sort of go forward with what looks like curiosity, even if it's not actually that? And can you build some muscle memory? Can you at least begin to institute some habits? Um, What do you think? Well, I like that word habits. Mm -hmm. And I would add another possible word, which is practices. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to teachers about encouraging curiosity in the classroom, I begin by talking to them about what they're curious about. And I have to push hard to get teachers to think about something they're curious about that's not related to education. They think because I'm there to talk to them in their role as teachers. That it should just be there. That they should, or that they should be curious only about some educational strategy or something related to schools. And when I suggest that they could be curious about anything, you know, bugs or waterfalls or the history of South Africa or how to make a bridge, I mean, Whatever. Whatever it is that they really want to know more about. Or gossip. So there's a chapter in my book about gossip because if you're in an environment of grown-ups who don't think of themselves as scholarly or intellectual, they often have this feeling that that there's nothing they even know to say they're curious about. But I've never been anywhere where people weren't curious about what's going on in the house next door. Uh Uh-huh. Um, (laughs) So I think the place to begin for any adult is thinking more about what it is you really love to know about and paying attention to how you gather information about that. So do you have other personal practices, curiosity practices? Yes. I have a new one. Yeah? uh, Tell me. uh, it's, It's related to almost everything in my life at this moment. I have a new question I ask myself all the time, and it's now the question I invite my students to think about all the time, Mm. and the question is this, what if I'm wrong? Mm. And the reason I have found that to be such a powerful question to ask myself is because I'm a mom and old and a professor, I spend a lot of my time insisting that I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. And being in the position of being the one the who authority knows figure. The authority yeah, figure. Yeah, absolutely. But 
that doesn't get you very far. Right. And we live in a time in this country where people's assertions of being right tend to be empty. And we mistake a sense of authority or certainty with actual knowledge or, uh-huh. or expertise. And it's actually not very interesting to live your life being sure you're right all the time. And it tends to go with being incurious. Mm-hmm. And as a scientist, the real question I'm asking myself all the time is, where could I be wrong? Where might have I gotten this wrong? And as a citizen, I want to ask myself that question all the time because it's the only way to keep moving forward, to always be asking yourself, what if I'm wrong? Yeah. Even if at the end of the day you think, in that case, I don't think I was wrong, at least you know more. And you know better why you think you're right. So it's been a very powerful new part of the way I go about my life. And I find for my students it's it's a really exciting thing to invite them to think about because they tend to think I teach at a wonderful college where students are very smart and they know a lot. But they've been rewarded all along for trying to prove that they're right instead of considering what the world might look like if they're wrong in any particular area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were going to change something in the education system that we haven't talked about yet, is there something more that you would change or do differently? It's related to something we've talked about. If I were going to change the education system, I would change the way we prepare teachers. Mm. Uh, I think we spend far too much time teaching them things that aren't really that useful to them. And we don't spend enough time giving them certain tools that would be really wonderful for them and just as importantly would be wonderful for their students. Perry Zern is a philosophy professor at American University and one of the editors of Curiosity Studies. He and I have been collaborating on a number of fronts, challenging one another to broaden and deepen our own exploration of curiosity and, frankly, reveling in the places it has taken us. So I was delighted and not surprised when he leapt at my proposal that his students include in their term paper presentations a pitch for an episode of Choose to be Curious. I happened to be editing this conversation with Susan the same week I attended the students' presentations, and suddenly... It dawned on me that we were walking Susan's talk. We were bringing our curiosity to the classroom and creating space for the students' own curiosity to take root and blossom. All right. Well, today I want to talk to you guys about a new area of curiosity studies that I'm dubbing developmental curiosity. Through developmental curiosity, we can understand that The curiosity that children are experiencing tells us a lot about the nature of our reality, the nature of our minds, and how that changes and shapes over time. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thanks for joining us today on your favorite community radio station. You can find all my shows at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to Be Curious. Many thanks to my guest, Susan Engel. Links to her work and curiosity studies on my website. Thanks, too, to Perry Zern and his amazing students. It's been fun to work with so many of them over the years. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is Curious Case by the Cabinet Makers via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.
if when you're with children, or for that matter, if you're with friends and, and other peers, if you're thinking, what does this person want to know about? Where are they interested in exploring? Even if you do nothing diff that's obviously different, you will see things you wouldn't have seen before. So the world looks different when you're thinking about people's curiosity.